Welcome to BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. We're joined by judges and legal professionals to discuss emerging trends, regulatory updates, and the latest headlines. We'll provide tips to help your law firms and legal departments make the most out of legal tech. Hi, everyone. I'm Jared Crafton, BDO's Forensic Technology Practice Leader. And I'm Daniel Gold, BDO's Managing Director of the Enterprise eDiscovery Managed Services Practice. Let's get started with this episode's exciting topic. All right, welcome to another episode of BDO's Legal Tech Talk. And we are joined in the virtual podcasting studio by the one and only Christine Payne. Christine, welcome to the show. Nice to have you. Thank you so much. I'm I'm so happy to be here. Well, we are happy to have you. And why don't we start off like we always do and have you tell us a little bit about, about who you are, a little bit about your background and, uh, and why you've joined us here on the podcast here today. I am a lawyer. I'm a mom. I live in Austin, Texas. We have a whole bunch of kids and lots of chickens and three dogs. And I work for a law firm called Gunster, which is Florida-based. And my specialty is e-discovery and litigation strategy. And we've got a fantastic group, many of whom have been together for a number of years, some new faces to our group. But we really love working together and we love e-discovery strategy. And that's what I do. Christine, is it also accurate to call you a mental health advocate in the legal space? I guess so, yes. That was not necessarily something that I set out to become, but the e-discovery community is smaller than you would think, and it is precious, and it is full of people who take a lot of pride in their work, and especially through COVID, it became really clear to me that we had a very stark problem and that it was being fueled by I mean, by us, right? Like we were doing this to ourselves in a lot of ways. And the community of e-discovery is made up of kind of this, you know, three-legged stool of clients and vendors and law firms. And like some of the practices and patterns that we had gotten ourselves into were leading to poor mental health outcomes for e-discovery providers. And that's, it's bad. It's bad for us right now. And so I started thinking about how do we get ourselves out of this box? Employers can can send scented candles and yoga videos to their employees all they want, and that's not really helping. And so I started thinking about some systemic ways in which we could make changes. And then there was kind of like a little group of us that wanted to do that. And then all of a sudden, we had like a mental health initiative. And so, yeah, I guess I am a mental health advocate, but that's definitely not what I would have ever predicted at the beginning of my career, probably not even a couple of years ago, but here we are. When you started this and you said there, there's a problem that I need to solve for, a lot of people think about these things, but not a lot of people execute on these types of things, right? So where was the, the move for you, Christine, where you said, this is a problem and I love my community, right? So I love my community. I love who I work with. I love who I work for. And I love the people in the community. This can't continue this way. What was that point for you where you said, I need to step outside of my space and I need to tell the world there's something not right. We need to be able to fix it. 
Well, I think it was a combination of things. One is that I'm now kind of at a level of seniority where for certain aspects of the job, I'm in charge and it's on me. And so if my team is experiencing work-related burnout, that's something that I have to address head on. And if I am you know, helping a client enter into a contract that is automatically going to drive over work because of the way it's structured, you know, that I'm part of the problem. And I started to see that real clearly. And then also there was a moment in time where we had some very, very negative outcomes for, you know, people we cared about. I've had friends who've had heart attacks. I've had friends who end up, you know, in the ER with panic attacks you know, we've lost folks in our community who have passed away. And like, that's not just being stressed out. That's not grind culture. That is where stress has jumped the line and it is now a physical manifestation and it's hurting people both from a mental health perspective, and a, but also a physical health perspective. And you cannot just sit there and watch that and think like, okay, well, this is fine. So you know, it was very clear that we had to do something. And I looked around at what was being offered. And, you know, you have lots of companies with very good intentions, right, who are trying to promote mindfulness or offering flex work arrangements. All of those those things are good. But it doesn't really matter if the flex work arrangement just allows people to work 20 hours a day in a different arrangement. So there's something had to break. Is there a stigma around talking about this? Is this still a taboo topic to bring up? I think it is. You know, I a couple of years ago, I was working for a firm and I had to do a bio for like, you know, some promotional magazine or something like that. And I wrote in the bio like a joke about my therapist and my boss line edited that out. And I think it was, you know, out of fear and like, and it makes sense. And I understand, and it wasn't wrong. It was just perhaps a tad too personal for what they were going for. But, you know, if we don't talk about it, right, if y'all don't know that I have a great therapist, then, you know, people I think are nervous to talk about theirs. I like to talk about, you know, the things that I do for me personally so that my team know that it's okay for them to talk about it as well. But, you know, there's there's a stigma around mental health generally. And then I think as soon as you get into the legal profession, there's kind of this like, I'm super tough, you know, I'm not broken, I don't need a therapist. And then in e-discovery specifically, I think it is very hard for us to talk about and accept kind of where people view e-discovery professionals in the tier of who has power and who doesn't. You know, lots of people think that e-discovery is like some secondary practice area. You know, e-discovery jobs pay less. You know, the hours are worse. You know, it's kind of like, well, if you can't get a regular job, you could get an e-discovery job. And all of that really kind of like builds up and it weighs on people. And so I think it makes it even harder for people to admit then that there is an issue. You know, the language that we use, Christine, in the legal profession is interesting. I think it helps, actually, it hurts 
in how we talk about things. For instance, we don't call the attorney on the other side of a matter opposing counsel as much as we call them our adversary. And when I think about that, I also think about something you said in an article, e-discovery pros speak out about stress burnout. You said if we're continually putting people into an environment that doesn't have a chance of success in terms of balancing workloads appropriately or managing stress, then laying it at the employee's feet isn't going to be successful. And I'm curious, how could we change some of the language that we're using? How could we change some of how we are approaching employees? How could we put people in a better position to empower them to be more successful and lifting that up so that we have this space of collaboration, even with our opposing counsel? I think language does matter. And we have to be very intentional about how we speak and regard each other. You know, the first place we need to attack is more at a structural systemic level. And we need to be looking at the contracts that we are entering into and whether those contracts have a chance of success in terms of staffing. So for example, if we're allowing, say, a vendor to enter into a flat fee contract where the scope is never going to work with that, well, then that vendor, the only way that they have to make money is to toggle the staffing, right? To reduce the number of people who are working on a matter. And we have very proud people in the e-discovery community. And if you ask two people to carry the weight of 10, they're going to try. But there's no world in which that that's going to work. And so these kind of like magical contracts, you know, that everybody enters into to think, well, we'll get the business and we'll work it out on the back end. Like that doesn't actually work for the human beings who are tasked with doing the job until that magic happens. And it may never happen. And so from my perspective, how do we better support employees is setting them up for success you know, in our agreements, in the way that we structure projects, in the way the contracts that we enter into. And so that means that everybody has to be really realistic about the fact that we are all here to make reasonable dollars for reasonable work. And so if you have a project that's going to require 10 people, you know, we have to stop allowing people to sweep in and say, well, I'll do that for free. In fact, I'll do it for free and I'll come to your house on Sunday and I'll fold your clothes for you. That doesn't make any sense. Like, no, let's actually talk about how many people, how many human beings are required to do this job. Then let's figure out how much that costs. And that's the contract that we should enter into. But unfortunately, in the e-discovery industry, we've, we've kind of like outsmarted ourselves. We've said everything's technology. Everything's, you know, super fast, right? And like our logos and our graphics imply that everything is done instantly with a push of a button. But if you've worked in the industry, you know that's not true right? It's a ton of people who are leveraging amazing technology, but there's still the people there and it's a long, grueling day. And so we have to acknowledge that in the way that we set up our projects, the way that we set up our cases and our contracts. Well, being at a vendor myself, Christine, I mean, this is music to my ears. I love that you have this perspective. Have you found yourself admonishing vendors now that find themselves in this position, you know, completely outworking, overworking their teams and, you know, probably under delivering for their client, which is you? I've been on all sides of this. Yeah. I've been in a contract, you know, that is not set up for success. I have been asked to, you know, help form those contracts. And 
the three parts of the community all have to get together and be on the same page on this. Clients, vendors, and law firms. Because I can advocate for you know, this type of approach all day long. And I can get a client on board with it. But then if a vendor sweeps in out of nowhere and says, well, we'll do that for five cents, that's very difficult for clients to, to resist taking that deal unless they are armed with the information that says, whoa, 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 that's not real. You know, like, let's back up and help your purchasing department understand what is actually going to be required. Let's go up your chain and talk about how you're doing budgeting so that the client is not immediately incentivized to just take the cheapest deal. And are you using the health and wellness of employees in that conversation? And if so, is the receptiveness to that? Well, so, you know, back to kind of this little group that we've got that is all of a sudden, you know, talking about mental health. So we called it the Mind Budget Connection, and it is led by clients. And that is so important, right? You know what's so interesting, Christine, is that what's so fascinating is that everything you're talking about right now is something that, candidly, Jared, you know, it's not talked about a lot, which is really just having honest transparent and human conversations, Christine. It's having a conversation that's not smoke and mirrors and it's not, you know, sales hoopla. It's just having an honest business conversation from one human to the other human about how do we solve this problem? And you've taken it, Christine, if if we're understanding right, you've taken it to a whole new level. And that whole new level is, is that, look, everything you're saying might be right, but if you're telling me that you're 30% lower, than the other vendor, there isn't something that's quite right. And we need to take a couple steps back and let's have another human conversation here. I mean, really at the end of the day, that's what it is. Is that right? Yeah. And I've really enjoyed the types of conversations and I've been able to meet people as part of this initiative that I don't think I ever would have met. And, you know, I had a great conversation with a a guy who's head of sales at a big vendor and, you know, they're a great shop. They do really good work. And I said to him, I said, how do you make sure that you are not incentivizing your sales guys to take bad money, right? We've all seen the bad contract, you know. (laughs) How do you make sure that your sales guys are sufficiently, you know, compensated to walk away from that or to encourage a restructure? I really appreciated his perspective. He said, it's really hard. This is difficult. We struggle with it daily. Because obviously you want sales guys to get out there and sell, but also you need to empower them. You need to inform them and make sure that they understand what they're selling so that, you know, they don't just grab at deals that are never going to actually be serviceable, you know, by human people who stay alive. At BDO, we have this, this core purpose of helping people thrive every day. And one of the things that you said in your essay in Women in Law Book, which I'd love for you to talk about some more about the genesis of that. But in your your essay in Women in Law, you had said that you surround yourself by smart and kind colleagues and clients and that you wanna create a work casa where people can feel comfortable, thrive and grow in their careers. A lot of what we're talking about right now is really about being able to provide the space for people to be more human, but what about for some of the curmudgeons, right? Some of the folks out there that say, this is, I get what you're saying and that's really cute, but we have a job to do. And if you're not fit for the job, there's 
share another employer that can hire you? How do we transform their lives to be better? Oh, we're hiring. (laughs) That is the best answer. (laughs) You know, listen, people figure out a way to be successful and they try to replicate it. And so it's very hard to say to folks who have been successful in a certain model over time, you need to break that, you need to change. But if this is going to be a sustainable industry that we all have, then we cannot continue to work folks to the bone. And so, you know, there's different levels in our industry of visibility into into contract structures, right? There are the people who are forming the contracts and, and signing those. Then there are the folks who might have some visibility into it, but they don't have responsibility for it. And the people on the ground doing the work, they probably have no idea how this got priced out. And so it's about educating and kind of creating an information structure so that the people at the top forming the contracts have some idea of what is about to happen. And so if the curmudgeons out there are not interested in having those discussions, if they're not interested in changing their model, if they just want to grab whatever work is available, like that's not sustainable. And those vendors, those law firms that are interested in having a more sustainable conversation, they're going to outlast. And eventually, you know, this model where it is a more open and a more transparent conversation about human services will be the winner in the end. I have faith. We use it. We're doing great. (laughs) And are you seeing a shift generationally with some of the attorneys that are newer coming out of school and, you know, some of the professionals that are joining the industry now? I mean, yes, you know, that's a perpetual question. You know, what are the kids doing these days? But the kids don't want to work 20 hours a day, I'll tell you that. (laughs) And, you know, when I graduated law school, the idea was kind of like, you're lucky to have a job. We have given you the, you know, the distinct pleasure of being able to walk into our building. And, you know, if you don't like it, get out. I don't think anyone thinks that anymore. And so really we have to be able to connect with people and offer them a community where they feel fulfilled, otherwise they're leaving. And I think that's, I mean, we've seen a huge, huge, you know, shift in even the discovery industry with people just walking away from jobs saying like, there's no money in the world that is worth that. So Christine, one of the things that I think we're also curious about, and also the theme of this podcast is talking about legal technology. So if we were to intersect everything we're talking about, about the awareness of mental health and e-discovery in the legal profession with legal technology. Is there a bright side? In other words, you know, has legal technology in some sense in your mind enhanced the lives of legal professionals or has it hindered? You know, I don't know. This is a weird question, right? Because in our little community, we should say like, oh yeah, it makes everything way better. But I don't know that that is true. That's the pitch everyone says, by the way, right? That's the oh, pitch. Yeah. No, I don't know that this is true. So my first job was making copies at my dad's law firm in Denver. And then at some point I kind of, you know, uh, moved up and was able to be like an assistant and we would, I would write some letters sometimes. And so we had a system, right? Where you go and we had, you know, it was the age of computers. So we would go into the computer, we'd write the letter 
right? And then I would print two copies. And the lawyer would sign one copy. And then I had this stamp that said copy. And I would put that, you know, in the signature block of the other one. And so then I would put the copy in the file. And then we would fold up nicely the other one and mail it off. And so the mail takes, you know, whatever, two or three days. And then our recipient, usually our adversary, opposing counsel, would, you know, receive it and be blown away by the brilliance of our letter and then would take the time to compose a letter response back, right? And then they would do that. And then they had their own, you know, letter writing system copy, and then it would come back to us. So we were not going to see a response to this before like, what, a week, maybe longer. And, you know, that was the pace at which we were expected to move because you couldn't move faster, right? I can't make the mail go faster. And so, you know, if you think about now how email, and that's a technology that has been adopted by the legal community, you know, do we, you know, am I only still responsible for moving at that same pace? And I just have all this uh, free time and I can, you know, go on long walks with the dog in the meantime? Like, no, no one expects that. Everyone just expects that you just have a higher volume of work. And so, you know, while maybe I processed 20 letters a week in, you know, that world, I now process the equivalent of 20 hours in like my first 10 minutes of work. And so I don't know that that technology has made things better. You know, also the email follows follows you around and it's in your phone, it's everywhere. So when you look at like new emerging technologies in the e-discovery industry, people often talk about how like TAR is going to relieve the need for people to really do document review. And I'll just, I'll believe it when I see it. Because what I see is that you need really smart people in and around a TAR system to be making strategic choices, to be making sure that the system is running correctly, to answer questions like, hey, is this data set even going to work in a TAR system? And the demands on people don't go away. What increases, though, is client and judicial and opposing counsel expectations that things will move faster, right? Because you're using TAR. Make it go faster. And so I think I worry about, you know, any sort of expectation that the technology is actually going to provide relief to the human beings using it. Because every example that I have seen over the course of my career, it just makes things go faster and it makes the workload that you have to carry heavier. And it doesn't help, Christine, as well, that we've got more data forms and more data types and data volumes than ever before. And so it's like a snowball effect is what you're saying, right? We have to have great technology in order to solve for the fact that we have so many data volumes, but simultaneously... Now there's even more pressure to get things done faster. Correct. But it's hard to be able to balance all of those factors together, which requires, I think, more louder voices from you to be able to say, hold on a second, expectations aren't really aligned here. Because think about it. Think about every e-discovery disaster you've ever seen. Or been a part of. (laughs) What? No, no way. (laughs) You know, things happen in the middle of the night when people are tired. Things happen when you're trying to go too fast, when you're trying to get a production out the door, you know, in two hours, even though everybody said, really, we need a 24-hour buffer. Those are when things go wrong, right? When you're not paying attention to the queries, 
these little mistakes. It's just very hard for human beings to be accurate at high volumes for that many hours in a row, day after day after day. And we're just not to the point where the computers do this all for us. We really do need human brain power and strategy behind these decisions. And so if you are pushing the system too fast, too hard, that's where you're going to have mistakes. And that's where clients suffer. And in my experience, if I've made a mistake like that, and it's solely due to fatigue, and it's not a mistake I can learn from, it's going to have a pretty detrimental effect on my health. Absolutely. Do you think we're going to get to a point where technology does, in fact, enrich our lives or we may be at this state that we're in for a, for a long time to come. In other words, can we get to a point where legal technology, whether it's, I hate to say it, Jared, because it seems like everyone we talk to brings it up. So now I'm going to bring it up, generative AI, right? And talking about the AI that can answer all these questions in seconds, right? Are we going to get to a point, you think, where the technology helps us get to a place of better wellness or it's just more tech, more volume? It depends on what practice area you're talking about. I really see tremendous opportunity for legal tech to make, for example, family law better. I think, you know, people who can't afford a lawyer and need a divorce currently are absolutely up the creek without a paddle. But I think there's really good opportunities for technology to be able to step in and help those folks. You know, maybe those corporate guys who do deals all day and seem happy all the time, like I think that they probably are seeing some pretty cool benefits from some of the contract generation tools that are out there. You know, I'm a litigator. That's what I do all day long and it's all I've ever been. And so from my perspective here in litigation, I am not that optimistic which is part of one of the the reasons I think we as human beings have to band together and say, we are not going down with the ship. We are going to make changes. We are going to have some tough conversations about pricing and about budgets and about sneaky guys who jump in and undercut bids for no particularly good reason. Like we got to start talking about that and we got to restructure it. And if we can do that, then maybe we can get to a point where some of this awesome technology actually starts to make life better for legal professionals. But until we can fix the human problem, I don't know that technology can help us. It's funny that the technology is actually created by humans to solve the human problem, but yet we are perpetuating a bigger human problem, Christine, right? And it's interesting about the tough conversations that you're talking about. It's almost as if you know, we need the strength to be empowered to have that strength by our employers as well to say no to certain things, to say no to, you know, reducing the overall price, even though it's going to hurt our company or to say, you know, we don't need to staff this many people on this project when in fact we do. And so when you talk about this lack of optimism and the ship sinking, I'm curious, do you feel like that's what's happening right now that the ship is sinking and and that we need to all band together to start patching up the ship? I do. You know, so one of the components of the mind budget connection is we had a survey last year for folks in the e-discovery industry. And part of the survey was a scale, like a burnout scale. 
to kind of figure out where are you in terms of, you know, potential for burnout. And burnout is actually like a, now it is now recognized by the World Health Organization. It is a clinical term and it relates to long-term inability to manage stressors. So it's not just stress and it's not the inability to manage stress. It's that extended period of time where you are experiencing stress and can't reduce it. And it has physical manifestations. It has, you know, consequences for work quality. And so measuring burnout is really critical. So we included a burnout scale in the survey and lots of people took it. And, you know, some of the results that came back were really, really staggering. But the one for me that really stands out is that on, you know, the burnout scale, we have like more than two thirds of our professionals at all different levels who are already past the burnout threshold. And we have another 20% that are right on the doorstep. So what that means is we don't have like a healthy group of people who are trying to save a few who have already gone past the threshold and like, let's bring those guys back. No, we are all way, way past. What's an achievable goal for an incremental improvement there? I mean, I don't think we can expect that it's going to completely swing the pendulum back over the next year or so. But, you know, what what's realistic for the next year, say, you know, this year, 2023? You know, if we, we do the survey again next year, what's realistic? I don't anticipate any sort of change in 2023. I really don't even know what is a reasonable goal for the industry because I don't speak for or control the industry. And I think there's a lot of folks out there who don't like what I have to say. It doesn't fit exactly nicely with budget management, or, and sometimes it doesn't fit nicely with profit management. So, you know, my goal and what we've kind of set forth for the Mind Budget Connection is to, in 2023, offer to the community a summary of what we have found and also some principles that contracting parties can consider during formation of their agreements that will hopefully build in more of a structure for human sustainability. Now, what I just said is incredibly wishy-washy, right? These are like guidelines that are recommended for consideration and discussion. You know, does that mean that anybody's going to do anything about it? I don't know. You know, it, it really is going to take, I think, clients driving this in a very similar way to how clients have driven equality and diversity efforts, you know, just starting to make demands that their vendors and their law firms comply. I think you're displaying a tremendous amount of leadership, and you kind of alluded to this earlier about your own personal style of leadership and how you model behavior for the people on your staff so that they can follow you. And that's exactly what you're doing for the industry and being part of the industry. I can tell you that Daniel and I both very much appreciate what you're doing here because we feel this as well. I mean, we feel this personally as human beings. We feel this on our own teams. Um, it's a real issue. It's something that we we all face every single day. Well, thank you. That's great to hear. Christine, if others listening to this program wanted to get a hold of this mind budget connection work product, how would they be able to do that? Work product, you say? <laughs> well, <laughs> so we or have learn more, a, to, more about 
your initiative for human sustainability. Yeah. Okay, that's a that's a better way to to approach it. So we have a little LinkedIn page, and we do put up anytime you know there's kind of a development or an article or um, you know conference you know talking about mental health in the industry. So that is a good place to go. We are working on a website, and the rest is to be determined. Well, that's good. So folks can go ahead and take a look on LinkedIn. We'll provide a link to the Mind Budget Connection that they can go to and learn more and read some of those links and in our show notes. And look, before we started the program, I talked to you about how much I so very much enjoyed reading the book that I mentioned earlier that you're a part of, Women in Law, Discovering the True Meaning of Success in Anthology. Would you be so kind to tell folks a little bit about that book and where they could find it? Because I was empowered and moved by the stories in this book, and I'd love for others to have that opportunity as well. Sure. You can find it on Amazon. So really, this was the brainchild of Angela Hahn who is a very cool LinkedIn personality. She does diversity. uh, She does um, empowerment. She does all sorts of things related to, you know, kind of examining the legal space and whether we are, you know, on the right track. And then she got together with an editor, Tatcha Gordon-Troy, who has been responsible for some very cool books and anthologies in the legal space before. And, you know, they kind of solicited, you know, women to submit their, their perspectives, their essays. Christine Payne, we are both, Jared and I, moved by this conversation, and we thank you so much for joining the program. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. If you're enjoying these podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe for more episodes. Head over to BDO.com for a list of all our episodes, transcripts, resources cited, and links on how to get in touch with us and continue the conversation. Until next time, this has been another episode of BDO's Legal Tech Talk.